Welcome to One Million Experiments, a podcast showcasing and exploring how we define and create safety in a world without policing and prisons. I'm Damon. I am Kiss. And we are in the flow in our second season of 1ME. And as always, we have our wonderful, brilliant, trusty partner in decriminalization here with yeah. us, Eva Nagal from Interrupting Criminalization. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> hey guys, it's good to see you. You know, I feel like after 15 or so episodes, like you don't get the full bird of prey sound effect. You get like maybe like a morning dove warbler type situation, you know? You okay wow. with that? Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, familiarity breeds pigeons, I guess. Breeds yeah. pigeons, I guess. <laughs> uh, Eva, who are we talking to today? Today, we have the great pleasure to invite Calayo Pestano, the co-executive director, and Derek Dizan, the community organizer from API Chaya in Seattle. API Chaya is a survivor-led organization that focuses on serving survivors of sexual violence, human trafficking, and domestic violence from Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian, Asian, and South Asian communities. APHIA believes in centering those at the margins. They keep young people, faith-based communities, queer and trans, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, people with disabilities, and immigrants at their core. They recognize that our communities have the resources, traditions, and legacies that we need to build the relationships and families we want for generations to come. We're going to go into a little bit about what API Chaya does in terms of services, but in general, they help survivors move from crisis to healing and thriving. They have free confidential wraparound services that include intensive case management, safety planning, emotional support, legal services, and therapy. Their advocates work closely with survivors to reach safety and independence. So one of those programs, and really what we focus on in this conversation, is their Natural Helpers program. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? The Natural Helpers program supports community members in learning about human trafficking, domestic and sexual violence, and the societal forces that create conditions for violence. They help community members skill build around how to respond to harm, injustice, and support survivors. API Chaya Natural Helpers receive training to support loved ones and community members dealing with violence in their lives. They learn from experienced staff members and community leaders, engage in informative and exciting events, and are welcomed into a community of collective action towards ending violence. And just a heads up, we spend a lot of the conversation talking about and uncovering the origin story of API Chaya and the Natural Helpers program. And this is one of the most beautiful, moving, and honestly, heavy origin stories we've heard in the work that we've covered. Yeah, it's heavy and beautiful, and we're excited to get into it. Let's hop into the lab with Derek and Kalaya. We are hopping into the lab with natural helpers Kalayo and Derek. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We got to give the sound effect. Yeah, Come yeah. Let's, let's go back. Let's do that again. That was <laughs> Come on. Like, as if we've thought... never done this. We were a little rusty. It's I was waiting on you, and I was going to accent. And I so was waiting we, on you. We, it's a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. No, we double-dutched that improperly. All right, let's do it again. <laughs> All right. We are here. We are in the lab with natural helpers. Kalayo and Derek are in the building. Burr, burr, burr. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, that, see why we went back for that. That's what we're. Yes. That's what we're bringing in. That's how we do this. So that was that was definitely needed. Yes, you know, welcome, needed. welcome, welcome to the One Million Experiments Lab. And we like to start all of our conversations with a tradition, and that is a two-part question. And this question centers around time. So in this time, and define time however you will. This day, this hour, this season, this lifetime. In this time, how is the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Ooh, that's like a whole podcast right there. It could be. It could be. <laughs> I could get us started. In this time, the world is treating me with some grace and some fun retrograde energies around like scheduling and the way that we are aligning all together, really in terms of time. 
Christina, I actually have, I have like a, a, a baby who's almost two. And that's like much of how I interact with the world is with and through my child. So that's very fun. Um, and feels, you know, new and exciting in so many ways, like exploring and experiencing new things through their lens. And how I'm treating the world. I am really just trying to like extend emotionally and spiritually somewhere in the Pacific Northwest because it's it's hard to let go, you know, it's a glorious time here and it's been a really sweet summer. And so, yeah. And then also just trying to, you know, make small changes um, in the realm of my own like control and um, hopefully that uh, ripples out to just more good things in the world. What about you, Derek? How's the world treating you and how are you treating the world? I feel like the world is so fast right now. I think about like where I am at in my life and the life that has been before me and thinking to myself, how did I get here? I guess the answer that comes to me right now is it's fast. Like it's, it feels like it's just going so fast, but also like when I think about it, it's like in slow motion, you know, it's like almost like when you feel like one of those life flashing before your eyes type moments. Right. I kind of feel that way right now about the world. So I feel like the world is kind of throwing me for a little bit of a spin. And how am I giving back to it? I'm just letting it do its thing. You know, I'm, I'm letting, just over here I'm spinning. spinning around in the whirlwind and just kind of witnessing it do whatever it needs to do to me and seeing how I can be helpful in the whirlwind of it all. And try not to get too dizzy, I imagine. Doing a little <laughs> <Yeah>. twirl. <laughs> yes, doing a little twirl, you know. So... Derek, you mentioned this question of like, how did we get here? How did I, you know, get in this life that I'm building? And I think we want to kind of start on the organizational end with a similar question, which is we have this very fraught, tenuous metaphor that we use um, because neither Damon or I were like star science students, but we made a science metaphor podcast. Um, But we do know an experiment starts with a hypothesis. And so when we talk about natural helpers, when it was starting in the, in the days, months, weeks before it, you know, existed in any form, what was the hypothesis um, behind it and, and what it could make possible in this world? I'm not sure if there was necessarily a hypothesis. It came out as an organic action. It didn't necessarily come out of like, if we do this, then we will expect this to happen, Right. I feel like the Natural Helpers program grew out of, this is happening now, so let's just do it now, if that makes sense. Am I understanding hypotheses right? I'm also not a science person, but that's my understanding of hypotheses, right? Um, but the Natural Helpers, you know, history is grounded in, in action, in the now. Can we talk a little bit about that history that it grew out of? Like, you know, I know it's a long history of the organization and of course this work goes beyond that, but yeah, just give a little bit about the the history that this work emerged from. Sure. Is it okay if I kind of jump in, Kaleo? Yeah. The Natural Helpers model is really reflective of our organizational roots. These roots are now almost three decades old, but our organizational history is really deep rooted in like how communities look out for another through a sense of like our, our culture, through our ancestry. One of the origin stories of our organization is that of Susanna Remarata Blackwell. And she was a young Filipina navigating um, a violent relationship. She's from the Philippines. She met this man named Timothy Blackwell. They had corresponded through letters, like pen palling type of a, a thing, I guess you could call it. But really, it was through this like catalog where women from foreign countries were advertised for foreign men to kind of make these relationships and have these uh, kind of connections. But for women in the Philippines, it was kind of advertised as like, let's have a pen pal. Let's like practice your English. And so Susanna met this man named Timothy in the early 1990s through this cataloging business. And it soon grew into an actual relationship. Shortly after... Timothy went to the Philippines, married Susanna, and brought her back to Washington State. 
I don't know if you all have been to Washington State before, especially during the winter. And that is when Susanna came here. But it's very different than the Philippines. It's like super cold. There's like no sun. Obviously, it's a different culture, a different language. And so she was really brought here out of her, her ecosystem, right? Out of her family support, out of her, her land, her people, her language. Unfortunately, soon after she was brought over here, Timothy began being violent towards her, making threats, being physically and sexually abusive. She didn't know many people at the time. In fact, I don't think she knew any people at the time. Um, so she was really isolated. And not only was she like socially isolated, I think like spiritually and culturally, she was also without that connection. You know, at that time when she was surviving this violent relationship, she called home to one of her friends and let her know like, hey, this is my situation. This is what's happening to me. And that friend in the Philippines said, hey, I actually have a friend that lives in Seattle. You should connect with her. Her name is Phoebe. And I think she might be able to help you out. Phoebe is my mom. So this is kind of where I kind of enter the story. <laughs> shout out to mom. And so <laughs> shout out to mom. Right? Shout out to mom. You know, she actually came from the same island as Susanna. It's, it's an island called Masbate. The friend from Masbate connected my mom to Susanna. And, you know, my mother, even though she wouldn't identify it, but she was definitely a community organizer. This is her holding up a brown and yellow cake. And the cake's um, looking, the cake's looking well done. That's a well, that's it a well-made is. cake. <laughs> it's a well-made cake. She put a lot of intention in the things she, she did for her community, right? So just like her cakes, just like the events she organized, she really cared for like, the people around her. And, you know, Susanna was one of those people. So she got connected to Susanna and really advocated for her safety for her to not be in this relationship anymore. My mom also pulled in another friend. Her name is Veronica Loretta Johnson. These two Filipino women connect with Susanna, and they're here forming this relationship, this friendship. And it's through their culture, through their shared like history of migration, through their similar language. And that's, I think, a really integral piece here is that my mom spoke the same dialect as Susanna did. She came from the same environment, same ecosystem, same land, same people, right? So they had that cultural connection there, right? It's really through their friendship that they were able to connect her to local resources, getting a lawyer, helping her get shelter. I think at one point, my family even housed Susanna. I even remember as a child having Susanna and, and Timothy over at my family home. And them having meetings in like the living room that I wasn't allowed to be involved with, right? And so already we see like this community grounded in culture, looking out for each other with the tools that they have, trying to provide resources and like, you know, mitigation to this really like awful relationship. They just started the divorce court procedures. And, you know, I think that lasted several months, you know, and in that time, Susanna was out here living her life. Unfortunately, at the end of the divorce court hearing in the King County Courthouse in Seattle, Timothy was able to sneak in a gun into the courthouse. My mother was there as a witness, as an advocate. So was Veronica. And at the last day of the proceedings, Timothy killed um, Susanna, who was at that time pregnant with her baby. Um, he killed my mother and he also killed. Veronica as well. You know, when that happened, a lot of folks in the community were like, what is this? Why is this happening in our community? And, uh, you know, unfortunately, this wasn't like the first of its kind in Seattle in the 1990s in the Asian and Pacific Islander community. But what made this case really particular was that it was done in like a, in a federal office. It made both local, national, and global news at the time. Here locally, people were kind of trying to wrap our heads around why does gender-based violence occur in our communities? What are the pushes and pulls and contributions as to why this exists? I think on a personal note, for me, I was just shy of five years old. 
And so I was really confused. I was trying to wrap my own head around, what does that mean? She died. What does it mean to not have your mom here? I think I was kind of like trying to understand that as a child. But, you know, aside from how it was impacting my family in a really tremendous way, it was also impacting like our community. And it really galvanized people in the Seattle area, Asian and Pacific Islander people and South Asian folks to come together to really ask these questions. What we did know is that we needed more education around why gender-based violence exists. And at that time, a lot of people, at least in the Filipino community, were doing a lot of like anti-imperial organizing in the Philippines, you know, and also in the U.S. too. And so people were drawing the lines of like, what does it mean to come from a colonized country? What does it mean to come from a place where resources are being taken from our land, which forces people to migrate out and be displaced in this land? And what does it mean for those people to continue to survive here, especially as we come from a legacy of imperialism and colonialism, especially if you're a woman or femme? From these kind of discussions and desire to learn more and to know more, about prevention, about why this happens in our community, the Natural Helpers training was born to really delve in to understanding more why this happens and also providing resources and how to support survivors in the community. Just how Phoebe and Veronica did, right? Like they weren't lawyers, they weren't social workers, they didn't have master's degrees. You know, my mom went to the local community college to learn how to decorate cakes. I mean, she was a midwife, I will say too. But these weren't people who were knowledgeable in like systems of oppression. These were people who knew who they were in connection to their land, in connection to their language, their ancestry. And they used that as a tool to really care for each other. And so the Natural Helpers program does come from that legacy of using what we have to really understand and support survivors in our community. I just did a lot of talking there. <laughs> no, thank you so much, one, for walking us through and sharing that precious story that is obviously so personal. So I just, one, want to say I, I'm sorry for your loss and your family. And I know that grief and mm. loss, like, you know, this is a, a story from your childhood, but to continue to relive this with us in a way to honor your mother's legacy and the way that she showed up, I'm really moved by and respect and honor. Uh, so I don't want to just rush into the conversation or into the next question and like really take in what you share with us um, because that is a tragic, horrible story that also is phenomenal and magnificent and beautiful in so many mm. ways. So, so thank you for uh, being so generous and sharing that with us. Yeah. I mean, you know, I feel like this is our origin story, you know? And so I, I, I do want to give a lot of like space and, Honor to that, along with, you know, Phoebe and Veronica. I think there were just so many fierce aunties, you know, at that time who realized that this was a huge system failure. There were already anti-violence like organizations that exist, but they did not understand our culture and did not, you know, care deeply enough about the way in which violence happens to you know, someone like Susanna or other women mostly that were experiencing at the time, you know, it was really a time when we were like, no more, you know, the aunties were like, whatever it takes, you know, whoever we can bring into this, like, this is now like our fight. Um, and that really is the how this organization started. Yeah, this is such a, a precious point of origin. And I think I have a question out of how you name the story that, that I'm interested in from two perspectives. So the, in the way that you name the loss of the, for this community, the response was not just how do we respond? You know, what are our tactics for interruption at the point of conflict and physical harm? The question you named time and time again is why does this happen? Which often in the face of this crisis, folks don't have the space or the wherewithal or the bandwidth to hold just even con conceiving of asking that question. So I'm very curious 
how y'all went about pursuing that inquiry? You know, that's a big question that I'm sure has a bunch of sub questions. And what were some of the the answers that emerged that you were able to hold? But I'm curious about it from two different perspectives. So one, Kalau, you may be able to hold like as an organization and as facilitators and as the folks taking responsibility. But Derek, I'm really curious from your perspective as, as a five-year-old young person who is understanding yourself and the world through this tragic, traumatic loss, your existence is now being shaped by the pursuance of this question. We've talked a lot in this show in previous episodes about how do we make these movements and these conversations intergenerational? How do we talk to our young people? And we don't often center those who are impacted by the violence. We, we think of young people as just like passive spectators. So as an organization, how did y'all pursue asking that question and what answers emerged? And Derek, for you as a, as a, as a child learning about the world through asking this question, how did that shape your understanding? It's a big question. It's a big question. So but y'all, bite y'all, off what yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate that question, Damon. And so thank you for asking. I will do my very best to think in my 33-year-old brain. <laughs> it doesn't have to be from when you were five. Yeah, yeah. The years right. that followed. The it could be your, could followed, be your yeah. retrospect on it. And I think it's really interesting to, to ask this question, especially as an adult. I think when children, really anybody, but especially children, when they experience trauma, it impacts the brain in such a way where sometimes when that child grows into adulthood, they may have blanks, like pieces of memory that have just been like cut off from their life. Pieces of their childhood that they can't recall. Part of that is a survival mechanism for people to kind of continue to live their life as they hold this trauma. Not able to recollect is how trauma has impacted my own brain. Maybe I'll have more memory 10 years from now. Maybe my body will say, okay, you're, you're ready at this point. Let's kind of tap into that memory and allow you to feel that. Maybe right now my body's telling me, I don't know if you can remember that right now, you know. However, I will share what I can remember. And what I can share is that grief and trauma and violence was not talked about in my family. Even as it actively occurred throughout my childhood into my adulthood. And so when this happened, my family didn't necessarily have the words for it. And that's okay. We always don't have the words to describe our pain, especially within the context of already surviving America. Like our family already experienced so much grief having to leave our homelands and to resettle here. And now this violent event happens. And now we're expected to make sense of it all, right? And so I think for the adults in my life, they're also trying to figure it out. And of course, young people learn from adults, right? And so if adults in our life are not saying things and are having a hard time vocalizing or processing grief and trauma, they're going to reflect that back to their children, right? And so their children are also not going to know how to use words, how to express their trauma. So personally, I would say that my family really had this kind of like force field around each other of numbness, of like not really talking about what actually happened, but really trying to tend to what's like, can we get food on the table? Like, how are we going to get to school? How are we going to like maintain some sort of normalcy? No one told me your mother was murdered. My family is also really religious, so... A lot of the stories were cloaked with like, you know, it was her time or she's sleeping now or she's a, she's with God or she's a Jesus. I'm like, okay, well that's terrifying. (laughs) Like if being with Jesus means I'm no longer with the people who I love and who are supposed to protect me, then that's a really scary thing to like imagine. Right. That kind of instilled a lot of like religious fear. However, I will say like my family did the best they could in regards to Susanna's case. I didn't really learn about it until I was like 12 or 13. You know, like when, like when the internet was just coming out and people would like go on like AOL or like mm-hmm. MSN and like type their name in and be like, oh, like what comes up? 
I only still still do that as an adult, but you know, yeah. When the internet was, <laughs> we're all we're all doing it. None of us are talking about. We're it. all googling ourselves, we're right? All googling ourselves. But you know, I think this was when the internet came out. My school had like a new computer lab. Everyone went downstairs, and the computer lab was like typing all sorts of nonsense, typing in their names. And I was like, okay, well, I, I want to do that too. Like, I want to type in my name, and immediately, like, the first thing that popped up was like Phoebe dead, mother of three survived by three children youngest derek five years old i think for me i i wasn't sure if i was ready for it you know i was like this 13 so i clicked on it and it was a a full article from the seattle times um in detail like what happened so i read it and i was kind of like really blown away of what i found i now know a little bit more but again, the adults in my life weren't necessarily talking about it. And so I kind of kept it on the, on the down low for a while. Fast forward like five or six years later when I'm in college, an undergrad, I'm at home and I find this little leaflet in the recycle bin. And it's an invitation from the API Women and Family Safety Center. And it says like, you're invited to this vigil to remember lives lost to domestic violence, to honor Susanna. Phoebe and Veronica. I'm pretty sure my dad tossed it in the recycling bin. I knew of these vigils that were put on by the Women and Family Safety Center. My brother had spoken at it, you know, in years past, but I never attended myself. But something told me, like, when I was 19, I pulled that leaflet out of the recycling bin that I should go see what this is all about, especially if it has to do with, like, my mother's case, my mother's death, right? Um, So I went to the vigil, which is held at the King County Courthouse where the murders happened. I went by myself. I didn't tell anybody. The vigil itself is hosted in one of like the, the chambers in the courtroom. Not the exact chamber it happened, but in one of the courtrooms. So I remember, remember myself just like intellectually understanding like, yeah, this is where my mother died. And it felt really like important and really nerve wracking and anxiety inducing to be there. I think especially by myself. I passed through the metal detectors. I passed the plaque that has her name on it. I took the elevators up to whatever floor the visual was on. And I kind of like allowed myself to be in the back pew. And it was really amazing. I saw people like chanting, like, remember Phoebe, remember Susanna, remember Veronica. I was hearing people having active discussions about domestic violence, about sexual violence, about how we come together as a community to honor those who died, but also celebrate our survivorship, our collective survivorship. There was food, it was like a big old potluck. There was like dance performances, speakers, you know, coming from a family who didn't talk about what had happened to my mom, but then entering kind of this program where people were being very loud about it, or talking openly and publicly about it. It really blew me away. And it made me think I, I need to get involved. In this with this organization. And at the vigil, they had advertised for the Natural Helpers Program. And that's how I got connected to the organization. And so I don't, I don't think I mentioned this when I introduced myself, but I'm actually one of the community organizing program managers. But I started off as a natural helper about 12, I think, years ago. You know, so much of what this series has been is about finding different uh, pathways for people to be invited into participation. One, just so grateful again for you sharing the particulars of your life and your path with it. And I think part of where it's useful is, I think for many people, grief is a pathway into participation in that kind of non-linearity of that grief. And so it's really impactful when there's a container for people to step into. So Kalayo, you know, whether as an individual or on the organizational side, you know, someone had to build that vigil. Someone had to get that food there. Someone had to, you know, handle the permitting and the permissions and the get the dancers and all that. Like, how do you think about creating the space for people who are, you know, confronting that grief to, to not even just transform it into action, but to hold it and take action from it? Yes. So the vigil is actually, you know, such a powerful catalyst, right? It's been happening every single year since the murders. And for the most part, it's been happening at the courthouse. Part of what, uh, you know, some of the founders did was kind of demand that we be given that space to mourn and to properly like hold the grief in community. And, you know, this story, you know, it like 
has really woven in so many different stories of surviving in our communities, right? For folks that we have lost and we still have to continue without them. Um, and for, you know, survivors that um, we, we've been able to support, you know, and are around or are now part of our ecosystem and part of supporting other survivors, right? That's like almost all of us at EPHIA have survived gender-based violence. For myself, it was in in childhood, right, within my family where there was violence towards my mother and myself and my siblings. And I remember going to my first vigil and I remember um, I went to actually a, a parenting support group, which is also one of the origins of the natural helpers. So I was doing childcare for the kids. And I remember being like, oh, these kids are like me and my siblings. I started as a volunteer coordinator and thus was like kind of interested with this natural helpers program. There's always stories that come up because, you know, a lot of times you're like, I didn't even know that that's what was happening in my family, right? Like I just came to this training to like support other people. And then you're like, this is something that I wish my family would have had, right? And that happens so much. And so whether it's like during or right after the trainings, you know, so much of our work is holding the stories, holding the grief, holding the loss, but also like the resilience of our communities and being able to respond in such a loving way to be able to feel like, you know, as somebody who has been impacted by this, I want to figure out how to keep this from happening again. I want to support a survivor in my life. And I want us to be able to have something that didn't exist for our families, right? For the people that we've lost. And there's just something that continues from the place of like where, you know, when Phoebe received that call and was like, I don't know this person, but she's from where I'm from, right? That is like APHIA now. It's like we may not personally know the person going through it when we receive a call or when, you know, a friend pulls us into conversation about something, but we know that person may be, you know, from the same place I am geographically or just like something that I've also been through, you know, and we can respond as such, you know, we have that, we have that connection. I love that as a like root of what we can do from there is a beautiful thing. Yeah. I honor this work so much. Um, have recently been in a lot of conversations about the spiritual dimensions of our movements and how central grief is to like our collective humanity. And one, the compounded harm that happens when there's not proper space made for grief. Uh, but to the generative possibilities when we actually approach grief collectively and culturally and communally. And so in hearing y'all tell this origin story, and if I'm just doing the math of Derek's life, where about 27, 28 years of continuing this ritual and this practice and tradition. And so we're going on 30 years, which is a generation of honoring and continuing to gather and have now been impacting for a generation so many lives in your community. So I have such reverence for that. And with that reverence, I ask this question, you're naming these trainings as kind of at the forefront of what is the offering to community. And so there are going to be many people listening to this that are not in Seattle and may not be in Seattle on a training day. You know, obviously there's things we can't replicate not being together and going through the process. But are there components, knowledge take away key points from the training that you want to make sure that folks get that we could offer to folks who may listen to this conversation to like kind of be in the lineage of this legacy of, of grief and ritual that y'all community has built. What's going on in the training is the simple <laughs> version of that big question. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, just, uh, you know, a big part of it is just breaking down like the messaging that we have around violence and like what, where it stems from, you know, I mean, many of us like get a lot of messaging around, you know, I think your culture is inherently violent and thus that must be the reason why there's so much like domestic violence in your culture. And we're like, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, like really we have a rich history, right. Of all of these things in our cultures. And part of that is, um, you know, our ability to actually respond to different forms of violence that have been put upon us. Right. Um, and to support each other as we make it through, whether it's the village, whether it's coming to another country, et cetera. In so many ways, I think it's honoring like our parents or our families like have, been doing their best with what we've been given, right? 
even in situations where, yes, we want the violence to end, like a lot of times, like we don't want that person to go away. We want the person to recognize their behavior and have other people talk to that person to be like, hey, that's not okay. Um, And some kind of change to happen, right? I think growing our ability to like hold space for like complexity, hold space for like so much shit is going on in our world. And that's part of the reason why, you know, that's um, showing up in this way, like in our family, in our household, right? And that like, we want to make sure that survivor, you know, the survivor, that they can kind of understand that this is not their fault. Because that's so much of what we internalize when we grow up in these kind of homes. It's like we're doing something um, that's causing this violence to happen to us. Um, so it's important to like have a way to, to recognize that like, okay, these are some reasons why it's happening and it's, it's not our fault. A natural helper, you know, really like out in the world, if you think about, you know, like uh, someone who like works at a church or someone who works like at a salon or even like your bartender when you're talking to someone, you know, about it is really just holding space, right? And kind of like affirming and reflecting like, hey, this is happening to you. This is really sad that it's happening to you and it shouldn't be happening to you. And like, let's figure out what resources out there um, we have, you know, that are like within reach. And I, you know, I think I want to make sure that I I honor the the fact that APA Chaya is a merged organization of the Safety Center in Chaya. And, you know, within the South Asian communities, a lot of the similar things were, were happening at the same time, right, in the mid-90s. Um, and so in our recalling of, of this particular history, um, there are also similar conversations that were happening that led to the formation of Chaya. And so much of their work is actually within Muslim communities and it's called the Peaceful Families Project. And it's also another really powerful example of how communities come together. Um, and it's very similar to the Natural Helpers. And now it's kind of like exists all in one place. I just want to say that because part of what I think is really powerful about this model is that, you know, we're using our culture and our cultural values or we're using our faith and our faith values, you know, that we really like want to live by. And we're creating ways to respond to violence is really in line with that. Like Derek, he first came on as a, a natural helper, but then actually became our vigil organizer, which is really wild if you think about it, right? Like it's like from what you heard about his first experience and his first visual, became our visual organizer and actually came up with this current name of it, which is Kapwa. I will let you tell more about it, Derek, but I think it just, it's so much of what the spirit is of, of our work now as APA Chaya and what the natural helpers model is. Thanks, Clive, for explaining that. Uh, I just have, I'm having this moment again when we kind of opened the space of like where you are in the world, and I, t- I was talking about how the world is going fast. I'm just thinking about my relationship with Kalayo and how, dang, we've known each other for a while, and now we're just here <laughs> on the podcast. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, it's like it's like one of those moments where you know, like you're you're speaking about an experience, but you're also like replaying the moments in time to have led up to it. I'm sorry, just in that time, if my math is correct, you're Coming to the vigil is we're approximately at that was the midpoint, if I'm not mistaken. Like I think that was 14 years after the event, and, and that was 14 years ago. Wow! After we said we're not good at science, you're just over here doing addition <laughs> yeah, and subtraction. Yeah. Oh, I'm, a, I'm great on the arithmetic side. It's when you start giving me all <laughs> yes, the worksheets. Your math yeah. is mathing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yes, I, I mean next next year is our 29th anniversary of the vigil. And then 2025 will be the 30th anniversary of the vigil, which would be the 30th anniversary of the murders. But as Kalai was mentioning, we have named the vigil Kapwa. Kapwa is kind of like the center of Filipino indigenous psychology. It's spelled K-A-P-W-A. It means the shared interconnectedness among and between beings and envisioning the self in the other. The root word of kapwa is puang, which is P-U-W-A-N-G. Puang literally means like space. And so we can think of kapwa as like the spaces which we inhabit that facilitate the sense of interconnection, of understanding that my life is connected to your life because your life is connected to mine. And my life is connected to a million years before and a million years ahead of me across space and time. And we wanted to name the vigil this because that's how we understand survivorship, that it's not done in solitude, 
it's done as a community, it's experienced as interconnectedness. The vigil serves as a place and moment in time where we can feel into each other's grief, feel into each other's sorrow, feel into each other's collective survivorship in hopes that that's where that transformation can happen. When you can understand that your grief is inter interconnected with mine because we've experienced similar violences, experienced similar losses, then the narrative and the stories transform with how we create meaning from these experiences, right? And I think that's where cultural work is so important because that is how we facilitate the sense of interconnection of Kapwa through celebrating our culture and using the tools that our ancestors gave us as a way to prevent violence to happen, as a way to connect to one another, as a way to have hard conversations. I should also mention that I'm a grief therapist. So kind of like my, my trajectory in my life has kind of pushed me from doing like vigil organizing, like youth prevention work to, you know, I went to grad school and, you know, did all that stuff. And, and now a grief therapist, right? And there's an aspect of like grief counseling, which is called restorative retelling. And it's a model of grief therapy, which allows the griever to retell the story in the face of a violent loss. What happens when we experience violence and traumatic grief in our life is that it takes away our agency, right? It takes our way of like being in that story. Because now the story is in the hands of somebody else's determination over who we are as a person, over our bodies, or over our people in regards to systems, right? And so restorative retelling kind of offers this framework of how do we then retell our experiences of loss and grief? How do we create meaning of it? And we do so by inserting, reinserting ourselves in the dying story allowing ourselves to relive that pain so that we can tell where we are in the story. That's why I so appreciated the opening of our time together. It's like, where are we in this world? Because that's, I think, what this movement calls of us to do. It calls us to reimagine ourselves in our pain and then retell a different story. I think that's kind of what we do at API Chaya, is we use prevention as a way to retell our stories so that our cultures can change, right? So when I say cultural work, I don't mean it as like a fixed tool that our ancestors have given us. I want us to think about cultural work as a very malleable piece of clay that was given to us from our ancestors and we kind of form to what's relevant, right? That's how we retell a story, is that we reform and reform and reshape ourselves so that we can find meaning in our losses. And I believe that's where like transformation can happen, right? When we begin to live in the retelling of who we want to be and how we want to like connect in this world. We really are imagining new worlds here and recreating and retelling how we want to continue our culture. And then that will continue to be passed on, hopefully to future generations. Yeah, I love this idea of imagining and creating new worlds by retelling the stories that brought you to the present. It leads me back to something that was mentioned earlier, which is, you know, in the 90s, as these conversations are starting, there being a real, uh, like, deepening understanding of the relationship between imperialism and gender-based violence. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, in doing that culture work, that retelling, how that piece of the story, that framing of the story has been reshaped either for y'all or when talking with other people within your community? Like, how has the work of addressing how partners address violence between themselves changed the way people understand the, the trajectory of, of, a, of a colonial past and the, the remainders, the strands that, that mm -hmm. don't disappear from that? Yeah, so many of the stories that, you know, we've, we've shared and also held with others is migration usually, you know, force on, on some level after wars or just large scale resource extraction of the, of the people we're from and in the Philippines specifically, it's labor, you know, that they're extracting, right? So many of us are here as workers and experiencing not just the loss of land and culture, but this like isolation that we've never experienced before because it's not where we're from, right? 
And then in the isolation and in the shame too of, you know, not seeing ourselves reflected in the same way around us, right? And the messages that were less than, you know, in this land, I mean, like many of us come, you know, even with like advanced degrees and then come here and do, you know, really essential caring labor, but for very little pay and with very little dignity. And so I think really like the isolation and the shame really play so much into how the violence happens, you know, within our home and our households. The silence continues, right? Like in Derek's family, that was a big part of, you know, just the aftermath of that traumatic event. And in my family, you know, similarly to this day, I think, you know, nobody brings up um, what happened in our family, right? I mean, I do, but <laughs> generally nobody <laughs> brings it up um, no unless <laughs> like, you know, it's like something terrible happens. And then we kind of, you know, have like an entry point to that again. Right. Um, and it's actually really, you know, important to understand, you know, like for me, for myself to understand systemically what brought like me and my family to this place, um, like here in the United States, but also like surviving, you know, this violence that happened for my father with like very little like understanding or material support or resources as new immigrants. And, you know, that's like so much of the communities that we serve now. You know, they had to they had to leave or even they were trafficked here. Um, and then, you know, they're in the aftermath of this violence. They're trying to find humanity. They're trying to figure out, you know, their new like relationship to their family and their new roles here in this place. And all we can really do is like hold stories and connect people to resources even without the like systems that, you know, are so hard to navigate, right? That we can figure out like, hey, you know, maybe this person can help with childcare or maybe this person can help bring over a meal or whatever it is just until the survivor figures something out, right? One other point I want to bring in is about food because as you can imagine, like so many of these initial conversations happen like around kitchen tables, around living rooms, talking over food. And that's like such a big part of our natural helpers training, such a big part of the vigil, right? It's just like making sure that there is enough food to feed everybody because there is like the healing component of eating a lot of really good food together. For so many of our cultures, it makes everything possible. You know, it makes this hard conversation possible. It makes the space possible, right? Our like cultural comfort foods, like one of I think both me and Derek's favorite thing to do during the natural health training and now is just like figuring out like what food we could provide for people um, to be able to hold this conversation and to be able to be present with each other. For sure. This is going to sound a little trite, but I mean it in the gravitas of what you just gave for it. Are there particular cultural comfort foods that you found like, obviously it depends on the person, but like people are more likely to open up when this is on the table or more likely to feel comfortable because not every dish is made equally, even within someone's home cuisine. It's true. It's true. And I don't know, people might fight me about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> or I'll, I'll speak, you can speak for you, but I'm no, curious. Like, it's time for the controversy. No. You know? uh, I'll throw down. Um, and, you know, I think there's always some kind of like... Um, if in the in, in the Philippines it's arascaldo or like kanji or something like that that I think is like very like comforting. Um, a lot of times, you know, has like ginger in it. I think there's like the aromatics. I think there's something about it that um, also is like foods that we want to have when we're sick too, right? Because that's part of it. It's like healing. This is like our favorite check-in question because we'll find out like what your comfort food is. And if possible, we'll like figure out a way to get that into the meeting, right? Because that's how important it is, you know, for people to feel like seen and that something that really brings comfort to you and brings healing. You know, you hear your language being spoken or you like, see yourself, your culture represented here, right? I mean, that just really allows the space for people to feel a little bit at home as they are experiencing like a loss of home, you know, because that's so much of what gender-based violence is, is a loss of home. Mm. Y'all have answered one of the bigger questions I've had already. So I just want to like respond to what I've already heard be named and then maybe offer space to invite folks into the work or into the resources if, if at all possible. But, but one thing I just, I came in with a curiosity or my own hypothesis around and y'all have spoke to 
is this notion of of cultural lineage, right? Like for folks who are listening to this show and to this series, so much of it is about creating new worlds or new systems. And often when folks drill down into the operations or mechanics of that, so much of it is rooted in reconnection or rediscovery or like the creation of the new is connecting to these ancient practices. And so in, in my context, often like restorative and transformative justice are, are prismed through these legacies of, you know, African and native indigenous practices. And so I was really curious to hear how for the API diaspora engaging in this movement work and in this restorative work, does that exist in parallel? And the answer to me feels like, yes, like I'm hearing deeply um, the way this interconnectedness I am because we are type of philosophy exists. And my, my feeling is exists globally and Western imperialism and colonialism has been organized to attempt to destroy that all over the planet. And we are seeing these diasporas recreate and re gather the fragments and build anew upon that to address safety and to, and to uh, you know, rebuild community and to respond to harm and violence and to create new relationships. And one thing I just heard this weekend is we talk a lot about storytelling. And I love how you say, like, the way we work towards prevention and stopping future harm is by telling story of the past. But also it doesn't stop at storytelling, like story creation, right? Like Derek is not just telling the story of his mother's legacy. He's actively creating the story that he is telling and naming. Um, and the way you also talked about the the racist stigmatization of your culture of being named as inherently violent, like, you know, as Black people, particularly Black people in Chicago, we get this this tag of being inherently violent and always trying to like work through that that language or that stigma. So just as I hear y'all name your work and your story to us, I'm feeling so much connection and honor as we are exploring and, and mapping out all of these experiments to see it, these global connections in this land through this diaspora. So thank y'all for naming that and like illuminating all of those profound truths for me. And yeah, I want to give space for folks who are maybe in the region, in Seattle specifically, um, who want to support, who want to learn more, who want to connect, who are moved by this conversation or by y'all's work. What are the ways in which y'all want folks connecting with, with the work of Natural Helpers? Well, you know, when, um, during the pandemic, actually, our Natural Helpers training was like nationwide because you can join. And so, you know, ah, that can happen, right? Okay. Um, and what I think is uh, is remarkable about it and its many iterations, because it has shifted so much, uh, as you can imagine, you know, it's been almost 30 years that it's existed, right? And big shout out to just like, especially I think Emma Katage, who uh, I think really developed the Natural Helpers model um, and, you know, other folks that were part of that. It's been something that we've been adapting, right, to community needs over time. So it's actually taken place in all kinds of settings, including like within prisons, right, when we do Natural Helpers trainings in there too. And we really just invite you to, you know, connect with us Right. If you're not in Seattle, think about, you know, sending a person to the natural helpers training so that they can bring it back to the community. Priya and I actually did like a train the trainers. It's something that is so needed overall in our movement. Violence is happening like all the time. Right. And specifically, you know, violence that we don't talk about or give a lot of space for. But when it happens, it tends to like interrupt our movement altogether. Or it doesn't, but it has a very real consequence, right, if it's not um, responded to. And so we really just encourage people who care about, you know, transformative justice and abolition to, like, really understand what it is that survivors go through and, like, what it, what it means, you know, to support survivors and how that is actually, like, such a building piece of movements and of creating, you know, different possibilities of, of our world. Um, and so, you know, connect with us. Our website is apichaya.org. Um, we're mostly on Instagram these days as apichaya.sea. And yeah, we'll be here continuing to do this work. That's beautiful. I have one last question, which is part of our fraught metaphor. So bear with us. Thank you all for your time. If someone were, you know, coming to y'all, not to, to replicate the same model, but to, to build off of what y'all have made. I mean, someone's interested in building something similar, you know, in that spirit of the, of the experiment being replicated. Like, what do you feel like people really need to know as they step into trying to do this work, maybe for the first time for them? 
I feel like assessing like what you already have, like what are the tools that you have? What are the resources that are around you? Who's in your community? You know, like Kalai was talking about your barber, you know, the person at the grocery store, that auntie that you see at the park, like feeding the ducks. Like these are all people in your community that are well-resourced, right? Everybody has a certain gift. Everybody has a connection and tool that they can offer your training or your community. So thinking about where you can draw from, from the environment, from your ecosystem, from yourself, from your own experiences, I think that's like a great place to start. One piece on that, um, you know, it's really starting with that self-reflection piece. Uh, Like this work is not easy. Like a lot of the work that we choose and it requires, you know, some amounts of just, you know, emotional presence and stamina. And that's like really assessing like where you are um, in terms of your own experience of violence or trauma or whatever it is. And not that that needs to be a barrier or that should stop you, but it's just really understanding that for yourself, right? That you want to be aware of what you're bringing into the space and what you're bringing other people into, right? If you're like forming a new group or forming, you know, your own your own project. Actually, that self-reflection can also bring into like, what is your gift? what you are able to offer that really feels like essential for you. And so I think that's really a place, you know, I want everybody to start, you know, in doing, in doing any work that's meaningful for them and doing it in a way that feels good. And I'm continuing, you know, like we want to see you here. We want to continue to see you here. Well, thank you for the contribution and the gifts and the the resource and the brilliance that y'all brought to this conversation. Um, yeah. It's been a joy to spend some time with you. Yeah. Thank you. It's really, it's really an honor to, to learn this story. Thank you all so much. All right, it's time for our peer review, which means we got to welcome Eva back into the lab. Eva, whoo, what an amazing story. What, what are some of the things that you are taking or picking up from this conversation with Natural Helpers? Hoping I don't offend all my peers. There's a couple of things that Kalai and Derek said that meant a lot to me and I think embodied the sort of ethos and, and mission. Talking about the organizing as a making and remaking of home. I mean, I love when they said uh, the aunties are like, whatever it takes. Like that is API Chaya is the auntie saying whatever it takes, but that there are these hyper-local networks, the kinds of things that we like to feature on the show that are tied to hyper-local networks transnationally. You know, this very tight-knit community of organizing that has been, you know, growing and sustained in Seattle since the 1980s is born out of organizing that is growing and sustained out of the Philippines for much longer than that, of the family ties, the community ties, the village ties. Um, It's such a demonstration of what we can do ourselves, the resources, the energy, the community that we can find with each other, and also how that supports deprofessionalization and centering of, you know, experience and expertise in our organizations. So I just, I really appreciate all the heart that was brought to the interview and how that is what API Chaya is, you know, against all odds, imperialism, colonialization, (laughs) gender-based violence. We find this group of people who just bring so much joy and energy um, to this space and to the work that they do. It really was so moving. I I have some deep takeaways, but I think one of the things that's coming to the top is just like the power of effective storytelling and just the admiration I have for Derek as how he facilitates people into this work. He could have just come on mic and said, yeah, I'm an organizer. I lost my mother. She was supporting someone surviving gender-based violence. And then when I got to college, I joined the organization. But in the way in which he took us through that narrative, and it wasn't until a few seconds before we got to the courtroom that I even realized what was happening and the importance of who I was talking to. And how we didn't know coming into the interview either. Yeah. Yeah. And so how this was shaping his whole life. And so by the time he gets to the impact of the loss on him, or he's shown us the picture of his mother, 
I am brought to that place, which is what's really needed for folks to to move and to activate. Like you have to touch the human elements of what this means and the, and the real empathy to, to mobilize people. And so, yeah, that really stuck with me. And then in the story, the way time works, and I kind of realized it as we were interviewing doing my little weird arithmetic, but we're talking to him 14 years after he joined the work and he joined the work 14 years after losing his mother. So there's something just feeling like cosmic about that, but from a deeper like organizing lesson, just the the dedication of folks to maintain that space for 14 years and what that consistency made possible. I, I think about the context of like how I enter movement. And so we have passed 10 years of the Trayvon Martin, you know, murder and, and verdict. We have approaching 10 years of the Mike Brown murder and the Ferguson uprising. You know, we're at like kind of the decade point and I see how myself included folks feel weary but if you stop at 10 years, if you stop at 11 years, if you stop at 13 years, Derek never enters that room. And even just realizing that right now, just the, the honor I have for that community's dedication to keep that room going for 14 years to be a space to receive him is really just like mind blowing. And that they didn't do it because he said, oh, I want to come and I'm ready to right. show up. They didn't even they know They were going to be there doing what they do regardless <laughs> And then he happened to choose to sit in the back of the room that year. I think it's a real testament to what consistency makes possible, especially as we're talking about these experiments that are, you know, a year to three to five years old to see a space that has been built across decades and how the work can shift and evolve and form new partnerships and and all that good stuff. But uh, the consistency makes it possible for people to find it when they're ready for it. That seems like a good lesson for people who are you know, building the scale of what they do is what can you do that you can sustain until the people who need it are ready for it. Any other takeaways? I really loved the little food throw in at the end there. And that like the food that makes everyone feel most comfortable is like a warm soup porridge stew situation that warms you from the inside out. That feels like a real cross-cultural international uh, organizing tactic that I think everyone could take and use when needed. If Daniel had his way, he could turn every show into a food show. So I know that that really <laughs> warmed your tummy up. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was a, I didn't know what the answer to the question would be. And it was kind of the perfect answer is like, mm-hmm. yeah, like a kanji, a, a thick broth into something that just like warms your core from matzo balls to kanji and everything in the middle. <laughs> it's always the answer. I think to go back to this, you know, this vigil that's been going on since the early 90s that you know it is still a space for people who have been together grieving since that time to invite new people in and to sustain collective action and i i don't know what the recipe for the soup is that you know api chaya has developed over there i think you know we're getting little inklings of it these relationships these meals these vigils this real emphasis on people learning who they are through these these stories, being able to tell these stories to each other and create new stories together. I think that there's just some, there is some secret soup ingredient in API Chaya Natural Helpers. Yeah, and you talk about this secret soup. I'm just thinking of like this, this global pot, <laughs> this global soup stirring that's that's been happening all over the world. And, and it brings me to just like a deepening connection to how we think of revolution. As us making this show, I'm sure many folks listening to this show hope for or are participating in a transformative, restorative ethic towards revolutionary change. And when you think of these restorative practices, at the highest form of restorative justice is grief work. When we really talk about what we have to restore, it is not just the harms that our people have survived. It is healing and repairing and transforming from that which has not survived and that which has been taken from us. I named it a little bit in the conversation, but it really felt like a privilege because we think of the word revolution and it comes to mean creating a new, but really at its root, it means a return. Often that return is contextualized in certain folk or indigenous traditions, but I did not have as much an understanding or connection to the Asian and Pacific Island restorative tradition that I I knew was there, but I was not informed of how that is still present in the work today. And so, yeah, just thinking about this notion of 
all over the world, humans knew how to do this work that we need to recover. And it is in this like reconnecting and these coalition type spaces and having conversations like this that we're able to see like the world that we want to build exist in these anti-networks or exist in these indigenous pathways throughout the world if we open ourselves and, and tune our channel to receive it. So when I think of the process of revolution and transforming, it just felt like an honor to connect to comrades that are also engaged in that tradition, but have their own cultural lineage that is sustaining that work. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe it's a takeaway for our listeners. Like, call your aunt, see what she has to say. <laughs> you know, no promises, but you can't hurt. Those are people like, not my auntie, the aunt. <laughs> Drink the soup, take the ride. Yeah, yeah. Call your aunt, here we go. Yeah, call your aunt. <laughs> All right, Joe, I feel like the peer review has been done. Eva, where can folks find out more about API Chaya and the Natural Helpers? You can always find out more at API Chaya. That's C-H-A-Y-A dot org. Also, they're on the One Million Experiments site, correct? Yes. You can also visit millionexperiments.com where you can listen to this episode, explore more about the organization, and what else? And you can see the trailer for our new film, One Million Experiments, which is now at millionexperiments.com. And keep an eye out for info about screenings and, and all that good stuff. But like... Get your little sneak peek of this film that we made. It's really cool. If you like the show, you should like the movie. <laughs> I would be really surprised if they were like, no, oh, this is where I draw the line. <laughs> I stop at the audio. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we got that down. Uh, where else can folks plug into the work of Interrupting Criminalization? Visit us on all the socials at The Boys Make Fun of Me, Interrupt Crim, or Million Experiments. We're at Ergo Radio on all socials, ergoradio.com. You can also check out our new movement media ecosystem hub, Respair Production and Media, at respairmedia.com. And with that, I think we're good to go. We'll be back in the lab next month with another experiment. But until then, much love to the people. Peace. <laughs>